Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the ETSU Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. We are post-ASCO 2022 here uh, in the second, uh, I guess the first full week of, of June here. Uh, recording this on June 8th. This will drop tomorrow on the 9th. So I've got uh, nine studies to go through. Uh, most of these presented at ASCO, but we also have some old FD updates from the end of May to get to. So uh, we're going to drive real fast through here. All right, so let's first start with, uh, and th there were two really huge things from ASCO. I'm going to start there. So I'm going to start first with uh, this publication, um, that was presentation ASCO, publication simultaneously in New England Journal of Medicine. PD-1 blockaded mismatch repair deficient locally advanced rectal cancer. So this was a prospective study, and this was an investigator-initiated study. with, um, um, And you know that because the, the drug name is not in the title of the, of the paper. Uh, it's uh, Dostarlamab, uh, a PD-1 monoclonal antibody. It's trying to find its place, and maybe it's found its place here. Um, so this, uh, this investigator uh, at Memorial Sloan Slattery, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York uh, and some other folks, they found folks with rectal cancer that were mismatch repair deficient. And what they said is a phase two study, right? It's a small study, right? Uh, in the, um, I think in the ASCO pub, um, presentation, there were maybe 18 patients. In the publication, they talk about 12 uh, and 16. But here's the idea. If you have mismatch repair deficient rectal cancer, instead of the usual standard of care, which would be chemo, uh, neoadjuvant chemo radiation followed by curative surgery, usually, maybe some adjuvant chemo afterwards, but hopefully uh, curative surgery after neoadjuvant chemo radiation. In this case, they're going to give them six months of Dostarlamab, all right? And then the plan was to do, uh, you know, standard of care neoadjuvant chemo radiation. Well, in everyone they've put on this study, everyone that has been enrolled, they've had uh, a, a, an apparent clinical response, right? So we can't, we can't determine if there's been a pathologic complete response because none of them had surgery, right? So one drug every three weeks for six months in these patients with mismatch repair deficient um, uh, rectal cancer uh, have no findings on CT scan, no lesion on digital rectal exam, no nothing, no sign of cancer whatsoever. And everyone that's been followed for at least six months have not had, I think six months after completing treatment, or maybe it's 12 months, I think six months. It's like 100%, um, no evidence of disease, which is remarkable. It changes the game potentially if replicated um, uh, going forward. I probably ought to do a whole episode on, um, you know, what is uh, mismatch repair deficiency microsatellite instability at some point. Um, in case you're not familiar with that, but this is a, a different subtype of rectal cancer. I uh, have saw somebody on Twitter say this is CML all over again when you're seeing response rates of 100% like this. We don't see that typically in oncology. It's a new entity. Uh, even last year at ASCO, there was some talk about mismatch repair deficient uh, or MSI high colon cancer potentially not being a surgical disease anymore. Uh, which, uh, as an oncology pharmacist, means the role of drugs may become the most important thing. One of the doctors I work with uses this analogy a lot. Sometimes he uses an orchestra analogy, first chair, second chair. Sometimes it's a movie analogy. You're the lead actor or the supporting actor. Typically, in rectal cancer and colon cancer, the lead actor is surgery. That is what is, is curative. 
uh, is surgery. And the chemo helps improve the rates and the radiation helps improve colostomy-free survival. But surgery is the most important thing. Well, what if a drug is the most important thing for this subtype of rectal cancer, mismatch repair deficient? Uh, maybe this extrapolates to colon cancer. Now, this is a small study, right? So here's the, here's the obvious kind of small study, less than 20 patients. Um, this, I think everyone was done at MSKCC. I don't know that for sure. But the folks who are going on a study like this where you're deferring the best possible treatment are maybe not your average patient, right? Obvious clinical trial caveat, the types of people in clinical trials, but really, really super exciting, 100% complete response rate you don't see, right? When I think of the most chemosensitive diseases, small cell lung cancer, limited stage, you know, uh, de novo AML, things like that, you're not seeing 100% response rates. Um, but, you know, you, you can't, I think it was maybe 17 people at ASCO is, is what I originally saw. Imagine a simple task that you do every day. Uh, how many times do you do it perfectly 17 days in a row? <laughs> you know, how many times do you exactly brush your teeth perfectly 17 days in a row? It's tough to do. It's tough to recreate that every single time. So there's obviously something here. Uh, is it always going to be 100%? Probably not, but certainly is going to change what we do going forward. Does it change what we do today? That I don't know. That I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure you're going to get Distarlamab paid for uh, until FDA approval, uh, but Distarlamab is on the market, so somebody may try to, uh, to do that, and certainly I would be, if I were a patient presenting, or if you see someone presenting with newly diagnosed rectal cancer and they do have mismatch repair deficiency, I would look to enroll them in a clinical trial for whether it's Distarlamab, Nevo, Pembro, whatever, some sort of uh, immunotherapy um, you, you hope that they would get. That seems to be uh, the way to go going forward. All right, the next big thing uh, at, at ASCO was trastuzumab durextecan in previously treated HER2 low advanced breast cancer. So first thing we have to talk about this HER2 low. We've talked about trastuzumab durextecan before. It's a, it's a pretty good drug from an efficacy standpoint, pretty darn toxic drug from an interstitial lung disease standpoint. Um, it's not often that a study um, shows obvious benefit of a drug. We saw that with trastuzumab durextecan compared to trastuzumab intanzine and Destiny Breast 03, I think. Change the names of your trials a little bit, guys. Anyway, let's start with this. HER2 low. This is a new disease <laughs> that's been created, right? It's not often... Um, what is common is after ASCO, you know, the, the guidelines will change their algorithm and they'll add a drug. Um, to a, a section of the algorithm. It's not often that the algorithm gets a new spoke on the wheel and there's a completely different, um, you know, a whole new slide added for these patients. We're going to see that with rectal cancer, with MSI high in the future, where they get neoadjuvant immunotherapy instead of, uh, instead of chemo radiation. Um, we always used to talk about HER2 amplified, term I preferred versus positive, uh, versus HER2 unamplified because breast cancer cells should have a little bit of HER2 as epithelial tissue, as a um, you know, it's an epidermal growth factor receptor 2. That's what HER2 is. There should be some there. Um, so there are very few things in life that are binary, right? You flip a coin, it's going to be heads or tails, nothing else. I try to get to land right on, on the side and not on the, the flat surface, right? It's going to be heads or it's going to be tails. Most things in life are not black and white, and so it maybe is not surprising 
that there are degrees of HER2 positivity. Uh, we think of breast cancer as being a hormone like estrogen receptor positive or not, but there's strongly positive, more than 50% expression, there's 10 to 50%, there's just above 1%. So there, there are different levels of, of expression, and the more strongly hormone positive you are, the better we feel about using hormonal therapy in those folks. Um, so HER2 low, all right, this is a new disease, uh, and so what they've done is they've done their immunohistochemistry, so immuno, there's an antibody binding to, uh, that is specific to, it's not trastuzumab, but it is HER2 findimab, right? It's an antibody that finds HER2 on the pathologic section of, of tissue, and it lights up, or you can identify it, right? And that tells you how much HER2 it is. That's in situ, or that's um, immunohistochemistry. That can be like one positive, two plus, three plus, four plus, whatever. I don't know how they determine that. Or zero, right? So if it is, uh, if it is um, one plus, that was, you know, historically not considered, and I'm not a pathologist, so I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, if it is, you know, three plus, it's HER2 positive, zero, HER2 negative, and if it was HER2, um, uh, one plus, they called that HER2 low. If it was HER, or IHC one plus, HER2 low. If it's IHC two and in situ hybridization negative, they also called that HER2 uh, uh, low, right? So that's kind of the, you know, if it's, if there's a two plus expression, but you don't find the DNA or the RNA, that's what the in situ hybridization is looking for. This was called HER2 low. Uh, or in the past, we might have called it HER2 equivocal, perhaps. Now, uh, I do have to mention, because the data here look really promising. When this was presented, there was a standing ovation that people said uh, on Twitter. Here is, here is the, the, the key thing before we get into to some of the data here, is people have been testing for HER2 for years, right? for years, for, for decades, um, they are using a homegrown, apparently, uh, investigational immunohistochemistry assay. So they are use, they're not using what you're using to test for HER2, or what your pathologists are using to test for HER2. They're using something else. And the, the most generous interpretation or rationale for that is they're going to try to sell their test to make everyone who uses this drug use that test. Okay, and there'll be an approval for trastuzumab directin with a companion diagnostic that you have to use, right? That's one way. The other, the, the, the cynical uh, view of why would they use this test is they're actually taking some people who would be HER2 amplified maybe with other conventional HER2 tests, and now they get put in the study labeled HER2 low, and the comparison here with trastuzumab directin is, is regular chemotherapy that doesn't target HER2. So maybe you have some HER2 folks who maybe would be considered HER2 amplified with a normal assay, and they're going to get HER2 amplified therapy. I don't, that, again, that's the cynic in me. Maybe that's not true. I'm not a pathologist. I don't know that. Now, this is a study of uh, more than 500 patients, and they try to, uh, they say in their methods, they're enrolling, um, they try to get the right ratio of of hormone positive patients and so-called triple negative patients, although they're they're not triple negative, they're now HER2 low. So it's um, if you look at the there are total, uh, you know, like 373 patients randomized to trastuzumab directin. Of those, 331 are hormone positive. So about 40 patients receiving trastuzumab directin who would otherwise be called HER or triple negative. Similar numbers, you're talking like 60 patients that are triple negative in this study. Primary endpoint is in the hormone receptor positive cohort and HER2 low. Uh, I think, yeah, PFS was the primary endpoint, which is silly, but they do see a statistically significant difference. Uh, overall survival, median overall survival is more than, 
uh, it goes from 17 and a half to 23.9, almost 24 months. Um, the uh, the Kaplan-Meier curves for uh, overall survival start to separate at six months, um, and they continue to widen, you know, out to 18 months, and then they, they stay kind of parallel. So pretty obvious overall survival benefit. Um, uh, you also see a, a more impressive progression-free survival benefit, which you would expect if you see overall survival benefit. More on that later. Um, the, the data in the triple negative breast cancer look to be similar, although you're talking less than 60 patients. It's odd. This is, this is you know, there's obvious efficacy here. You can, you can look at the, the prior treatment and, and, and nitpick that. They don't tell you, you know, 100% got prior chemo. We assume they all got anthracyclines. You assume most got taxane because the physician's choice chemo arm had maybe like 15% people receiving taxane. So you hope 85% already had a taxane in the past. I won't say much about that because the key takeaway here is her too low is gonna complicate our lives. And here's how. You have, one, you have this new assay and can you just use your homegrown HER2 assay for this? I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not smart enough to understand that. You're gonna have patients who have uh, hormone receptor positive, HER2 unamplified disease, the most common type of breast cancer, who recurs seven years after you know, starting adjuvant chemotherapy and two years after finishing adjuvant uh, hormone therapy. And you, know, you have to say, is this HER2 low? Do we go back and look at this? Um, one thing I'll, I'll say, of, of, you know, there are some questions about how can, why is there not immunotherapy being given to some of these uh, hormone negative patients, or why are there, you know, why, why do the, the the numbers of CDK6 numbers, how you counted prior therapy was a little funky. Sometimes, you know, breast cancer is like a leopard that changes its spots, right? It can be, uh, you, if you do a really good job treating HER2 amplified disease, the recurrence may be HER2 unamplified. The same goes for hormone receptor positive. But anyway, trans 2 Drexacan, you know, there's going to be a new algorithm in the breast cancer gun. It's not just going to be HER2 amplified or not. There'll be this HER2 low that has to go into this. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a big thing there. All right. So there is, um, oh, I'm out of order here. Now let's talk about lung cancer next. Let's talk lung cancer next. All right. So um, one of the abstracts I was looking the most forward to was a pooled analysis by the FDA. So this is not exactly an apples-to-apples apples comparison. They're just taking the data that have been submitted to the FDA, and they're looking at those patients with PDL1 greater than 50%, those who got a single-agent immune checkpoint inhibitor versus those who got immune checkpoint inhibitor plus chemo. And you're saying, well, why would we do that? We know we can do Pembro, right, for those folks with PDL1 expression above 50%. Well, maybe chemo plus Pembro is better. We know that for almost any study, when you compare immunotherapy to just chemo, there's a crossing of the curves, and we see that later on in something I'll talk about. So maybe giving chemo up front would benefit for some patients. The top line results here is there's no difference, although there is a trend, I will say an efficacy trend towards improved survival with the chemo plus IO arm, uh, although that's not statistically significant. There's also a trend in the subgroup analysis that the younger you are, that you're more likely to benefit from chemo plus IO upfront versus IO. Now, this is an abstract, it has been published, so I interpret with, with lots of caution here. I'm gonna give you the, the point estimate hazard ratios for overall survival. So the lower the number, the more benefit for chemo plus IO compared or relative to IO alone. So I'm gonna give you three numbers in a row. We're looking at those under 65, then those 65 to 74, then those over the age of 75, okay? So the hazard ratio are 
nice, nice moderate effect size. Uh, and those under 65. 0.83, very you know small effect size. Uh, then a hazard ratio of 1.68, uh, with a very wide constant rule, like huge because of small numbers, suggesting that maybe there's detriment to chemo and IO compared to just IO and those over 80, over 75. Um, so there does seem to be a trend that the younger you are, the more benefit you may get from chemo and IO for those really enriched pd one positive patients. Now, again, would love to see this, uh, see this published before um, getting any uh, further into this. I will say there is a current phase three study called PERSEE, P-R-S-E-E, that is looking at Pembro in these patients compared to chemo plus Pembro. Uh, by the way, PERSI is a really dumb acronym if you look it up how they got to that. Now, this is a brilliant uh, study designed by the Pembro folks because obviously we're asking this question. I'm talking about it. The FDA is asking this question. So what do the Pembro folks do? They design a study that's Pembro versus Pembro plus chemo. So the, the best regimen, if there is a better regimen, is going to be a Pembro regimen. And I'm sure the other ones are doing this too. It's a me too world. All right, sticking to lung cancer. This was a an abstract I saw people on Twitter say was practice change, and I just don't I don't see how this practice change. It's called the lung map, S eighteen hundred A. This is looking. It's a phase two randomized study. Phase two randomized studies should should not be practice changing unless it's an incredibly rare disease like, you know, some brand new soft tissue sarcoma. Um, this is ramucirumab and Pembro versus standard of care in patients who have previously been treated with immunotherapy. So a really good question to ask in the era where we're using immune checkpoint inhibitors up front, what do we do second line and can we still use an immune checkpoint inhibitor? So this is combining Pembro with a VEGF targeting agent in Reserimab versus standard of care. Small study, 166 patients. Uh, you see a statistically significant difference in overall survival in the Reserimab plus Pembro but no difference in progression-free survival, no difference in overall survival. Well, if there's no difference in overall survival, there's no apparent difference in activity. No difference in progression-free survival, so their disease are progression at the same rate, but somehow Ramucermat plus Pembra are living longer. Maybe there's benefit to longer IO. Could be, could just be artifact, right? This is what we saw with Olaritumab, and it lost its approval for, uh, for sarcoma. No benefit in PFS, but a, a, an odd benefit in overall survival. We talked about this on this podcast years ago. I'll also mention here, here's, here's the hazard ratio uh, for overall survival. 0.69 with an 80%, not 95, 80% confidence interval of 0.51 to 0.92. Um, they're doing one-sided p-values instead of two-sided. There's some shadiness here. Um, six patients in this, the standard of care arm. You know what their treatment was? No treatment, and they're included in the final analysis. So uh, very much I think this is artifact. Wait for the phase three study uh, for this. Uh, speaking of, uh, oh, ooh, let's move on. Sorry, let's go, to, let's go to myeloma now. All right, so this was a big study. This was determination presented at ASCO and published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in tandem, pun intended. So this is looking at, uh, and there's been another IFM study that looked at this, essentially upfront transplant versus delayed transplant. Um, uh, and that's not exactly what this study was, but that's kind of what it ended up being. So this is looking at VRD, kind of the standard induction myeloma regimen, uh, followed by transplant versus just VRD alone, and then both groups got little of maintenance. So a very good question to ask in our current era in myeloma. Um, as you would expect, there's a sizable progression-free survival benefit to doing transplant up front. No difference in overall survival. Uh, um, and I think in those folks who 
uh, were not randomized to transplant. Only 28% got an auto transplant. Um, and I'll mention that the, um, you know, the overall survival uh, cap microbes are completely superimposed, and we've got we've got data out to five and six years and haven't reached the median overall survival. So we're you know we're doing a good job uh, treating myeloma. Maybe that's the first takeaway from this as far as how long patients are living. Uh, it certainly says to me and to I think people who are transplanters uh, that maybe you don't have to do transplant right away for these these myeloma folks. Um, there, there's kind of a trend now in the literature that transplant certainly has a ton of disease activity. Um, and uh, at least from drug cost, Belfalan's probably, the, along with dexamethasone, the, the cheapest uh, myeloma drug uh, that we have, I would think. So uh, this is a big study. If you're a transplant center, gonna cause a lot of angst uh, in your myeloma group about when to do auto. And I think pretty clearly uh, it's safe to defer transplant if somebody wants to, to not do transplant right away. Like maybe VRD was hard on them and they're like, ah, you know, I'm not ready for transplant right now. I'll just do lilamide maintenance for a while. Seems reasonable. Speaking of transplant later, uh, I want to talk about Echelon 1. This is an old study. This is the, the uh, horribly named AAVD versus ABVD in Hodgkin's lymphoma that has showed this modified progression-free survival benefit. This is uh, six-year um, overall survival data that they show. It's the first time that they've shown improvement in overall survival, I think. And there was a press release a couple months ago from them looking for this. So here's the estimated six-year overall survival rate, 93.9% uh, .9 with the brintuximab vedotin group uh, with uh, AVD compared to 89.4% with ABVD. So like, you know, a 4.5% Am I doing that math right? I think so. Four and a half percent absolute improvement in six-year overall survival, which would be notable, right? Um, now, the progression-free survival curves uh, are perfectly parallel after a year, after 12 months. So I don't think we're seeing prolonged benefit of brintuximab. So my the obvious question here, kind of like in determination, is how many people got access to an autotransplant in the relapse setting, which would be standard of care. That I don't know, don't think this has been published. That's the key question for this. Um, they do give us the rates of secondary malignancies uh, and it's lower with the brintuximab group, 3.4% I believe versus 4 point, or 3.9% versus 4.7%, I can't read my numbers. They don't present the percentages uh, on the slide. So uh, really looking forward to this Echelon 1 data. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of folks have held off on, on on adding brintuximab, at least locally we have, um, gonna be, you know, maybe accepting this brintuximab regimen uh, if we're really convinced of this, uh, if it's worth the cost for, uh, you know, a number needed to treat, if the absolute, you know, improvement is 4%, you're talking a number you treated of 25, you know, probably, probably reasonable if I'm doing that math right, maybe a little bit more than 25. Uh, okay. So that was, that was kind of the bigger things to me. Now there are a couple really interesting things for the future, all right? So we have publications in JCO about breast cancer, in New England Journal Medicine about colon cancer, about using circulating tumor DNA and guiding treatment. A lot of talk, a lot of hype. Phase two studies, uh, wait for the phase three studies, right? Those are, that's kind of my ASCO <laughs> summary, all right? Um, next thing, on May 27th, it's an FDA approval. On May 27th, FDA approved nivolumab, uh, for uh, esophageal squamous cell carcinoma uh, with um, fluoroprimidine and platinum-based chemo. This is based on Checkmate uh, 648. Uh, note that they say platinum 
and fluoropyrimidine. Uh, they don't say you have to use cisplatin 5-FU, which is the study, uh, what they used. So that would allow you to use folifox per the label. Um, uh, they also proved nivolumab in combination with IPI, which was also compared. Both these regimens, nevo-IPI and then nevo plus chemo, were compared to chemo alone. Um, when you look at your overall survival, you see overall survival benefit. It's the same story that we've seen over and over, not over and over again, but most of the time with immune checkpoint inhibitors in disease where there is activity. When you add it to chemo compared to chemo alone, you see the most benefit, in this case, obvious overall survival benefit in those pdl one positive patients. Then when you look at the whole population, which includes those same pdl one positive patients where you notice benefit, and the pdl one negative population, there's modest benefit or small benefit. Here are the median overall survival data for these three, three cohorts for the pdl one negative folks, less than 1%. 12 months, 12 months, 12.2 months. It doesn't even matter which group I'm saying in which order. It doesn't appear to have activity uh, in overall survival in those that are PD-L1 negative, yet the approval based on how they did their statistical analysis and design is in all patients. Clever, clever. And the other thing that we see that we've seen before is in the Nevo-IPI arm with no chemo. Compared to chemo, the curves cross, and there is better survival in the first, say, six months with the chemo group compared to just the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor group. So, uh, you know, we've seen that in, in lung cancer and, and other cancers uh, before. So certainly folks with, with disease burden, even if, if they can tolerate chemo, you probably want to give them some chemo. Uh, all right, the last thing I'll talk about, uh, umbrella sip. It seems like it wasn't that long ago I was, you know, using the umbrella emoji to talk about the approval of umbrella sip, a PI3, uh, uh, PIK3A, in, uh, kinase inhibitor, uh, its uh, approval for, um, I think it was yeah, follicular lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, was withdrawn from the market voluntarily. Uh, because of a phase three study, I think it was Umbrellasib with um, CD20 monoclonal antibody, uh, I forget which one it was, uh, compared to chlorambucil plus obinutuzumab. And there was worse survival with Umbrellasib. When your drug has worse survival compared to chlorambucil, it's not a good drug. So it is off the market. Now, the, um, the folks at the drug company, in their press release, they do say if you exclude the COVID deaths, there's no difference in survival. And that's, that's just kind of silly. Umbrellasib inhibits B-cell activity. It's immunosuppressive. It's immunosuppressive. So, of course, there's going to be more death in, during a pandemic. Uh, you, you know, you do wonder if, this, if the study was not during, during a pandemic, if it doesn't seem that worse overall survival. Uh, but... Uh, doesn't mean it would have been better as well. So anyway, umbrella sib removed, and in light of the review of this, or leading up to the review of this, the FDA said they're going to scrutinize a little bit differently. I think they said no more surrogate endpoint approvals for these PI3 kinase inhibitors because of this uh, probably um, uh, death rate uh, seen in these studies. All right, so I don't know how long that was, but that was the ASCA recap plus some FDA updates. Uh, we got some uh, LBGTQ clinical pearls coming uh, probably next week, next week, certainly this month. And, uh, you know, there's always stuff to talk about. So if you have ideas, send me a, a message on the social medias for a, an episode. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.